So do you have to tell you about why I was 40, like 45 minutes late? Okay, <laughs> I'm me, excited. Let me tell you about my morning because it's been a long morning. First of all, I was up late last night. As like one does. 1 a.m. Because <laughs> I was working. Because I had to finish like some content for the rest of this week. Okay. So I was up late. <laughs> so I didn't go to bed till 1 and then I was up at 5.30. Why? No idea. But my body was like, you're not That's sleeping. what time I have to be at work on work days. Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. I used to have to wake up when I was a teacher. That time it was the worst. Um, Ew. Teaching <laughs> and waking up, correct? <laughs> Children and waking up. <laughs> yes. And, um... So I was up at 5.30, and then, so my dogs were supposed to go to daycare today, because I was, I knew I was coming here, and then I'm going later to my friend's birthday party, and he lives in Orlando, so mm -hmm. I have to drive over there, and then, um, I didn't want to, like, have to drive back late, so he's like, you can always spend the night. Okay, and so that's then, why you're doing daycare. Yeah, so I was gonna, like, I was gonna board them. So, <laughs> on Thursday, when I take, because my dogs normally go to daycare Mondays and Thursdays. So on Thursday, the lady from the daycare calls and says that my dogs are, my shots on my one dog are overdue, right? On my golden retriever. And I was like, okay, I'll try to see if I can get him in. So I was able to get him in Friday. And she's like, that's fine. You just need to bring me the paper by Saturday. Mm -hmm. So I take him in Friday. I get a shot. And then I forgot to ask the lady at the desk at the vet place for the shot record. But she gave me a receipt that said I paid for the shot. Right? And it said, mm -hmm. like, the name of the shot there. So, like, so then I forgot to do it. My vet's open on Saturdays, right? So I was like, okay, no problem. I'll go Saturday morning first thing. I'll get there as soon as they open, and then I'll take them. It'll be fine. They're no longer open on Saturdays anymore. Oh. So I went there, and they were locked, closed. So anyway. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so then um, I drove over, and I was like, will you take this receipt? as proof of like that he got a shot and she said no i can't take it so i take my dogs to a different vet than i did when they were puppies mm -hmm. and the other vet i called them because they're open on saturdays and i said do you have record of my dog getting this specific vaccine this year because i know i took them earlier in the year to get the vac to get a vaccine i just didn't remember which one they called and said that I got it done in January. So then I said, okay. So then I tell her, hey, I called this vet that's open. And they said that I got it in January. She called them, no. They said, like, yeah, they said, no, you didn't get that vaccine. You got um, the, the rabies and a different one. But not, like, the specific one that she said I was overdue for. <laughs> so then I was like, okay. So then I called them again because she called from her phone. I called from my phone. I called from my phone again. And then they said no. And I don't know who the hell I talked to the first time. But Sounds like my medicine. Yeah. It's really fun. But anyway, so that's why I was like 45 minutes late. And then I had to bring them back home. And then, so my mom was watching them. Oh, okay. But yeah, no, it's, it was just, it was just a very long morning. I was just like, it's been a long day already. And it's only nine o'clock in the morning. I was about to look at my watch. And then I realized I didn't have it on. <laughs> <laughs> he fusses at me when I don't wear it. Cause he got it for me. Did, did, is it an Apple watch? Yeah. Yeah, I like to, I only wear it because I constantly ding ding my phone. Yeah, whenever I can't find my phone, if I'm not wearing the watch, goes, hmm, if only you had a device that could locate it for you. <laughs> I'm like, thanks, I know. <laughs> and it's worse when I can't find the watch either. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then you're just, you're just out of luck. Oh, big time, yeah. Out, yeah. I can't whistle. 
I can't whistle either. I played a flute for six years. I can't whistle. <laughs> what, the, what does that have to do with whistling? I don't know. Everybody says when you play flute, you should be able to know how to whistle. And I'm like, I hope you know that the mouth thing that you make to play the flute is not the same mouth. The mouth that, shape? Yes. <laughs> that you do to whistle. I couldn't think of the word. I mean, that's a perfect lead-in because we are technically talking about mouth shape for this one. Oh, let's get into mouths. I hope everybody... <laughs> <laughs> you didn't think that you were getting to first base on this podcast. <laughs> I had hoped not. <laughs> Do you want to introduce first? I'm Olivia. I'm a, oh God, I'm a graduate student now. Yeah. Getting my master's in, I don't know why it's the School of Pharmacology, but it's with a concentration in forensic science. Oh, it's with pharmacology? I didn't know that. I didn't know either for the longest time, and then I applied. Oh, <laughs> Cool. All right. Hi, I'm Kiera. Um, I have a master's degree in none of this. I have a master's degree in biomedical engineering. But you're an enthusiast of I the am. forensic sciences. I, I like to call myself a true crime and forensic aficionado. I was about to say, you better say the word aficionado. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, so and this is Live Laugh Liver Mortis. Um, thank you to Kiera for the name. Yes. Thank you for Google for inspiring me. <laughs> And uh, we are a forensically based podcast that will be educating you on different forensic techniques as well as going over the cases that were able to be solved and the progress that's made in the crime scene with the forensics behind it. Yep, and the whole scientific aspect on what what branch of forensic science it's under and the specific technique that we'll be covering. Okay, so what we talk about today. Forensic odontology. Ooh which is basically forensic dentistry and to work with teeth. So basically forensic odontology, it's a branch of forensic medicine that specifically deals with teeth and the teeth marks that are left behind. So it's, you normally hear about forensic odontology with the identification of bodies, bones when they're found, if there's no other way to identify a body, like that murder case in Ruskin, since the body was burned, there's not really another way to identify the person other than dental records. So they did actually use dental records. Okay. It's mainly for identification, but it can also be used for comparison of bite marks. And that's what we're gonna be talking today about specifically is bite mark analysis. Oh, I was gonna say I have a quick question. I don't yeah. know if you know this. Is there like a Okay, so you know, like, there's a database of fingerprints, right? Yeah. Is there a database of dental records? Like, where do they get the... How do they find out that it's a match? So basically, to identify from... Based on teeth and dental records, pre-death information from dental records and post-mortem notes, as long as information and features needed for documentation and comparison are used for the identification process, which basically... X-rays are most commonly used when those are not available. It's dental charts from your prior exams. Okay. So they can usually narrow down who this person could possibly be based on the geographical area. Do they match the description or like dimensions of a missing person in the area? So they can at least narrow down and know which dentist to look for, if there's any specific markers in the teeth. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so like for me, I was born without canine teeth, so that would be a pretty identifiable marker. Were you really? Yeah. Oh, I know. That's cool. That's interesting that, like... Yeah, my dentist found that out recently, actually, within the past couple years. Oh. So if they found a body with no, de- with no canine teeth, mm-hmm. that really narrows down their search to just a smaller number of people than specifically um, 
not specifically, but rather than a huge number of people that have gone missing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that's the primary use of, of forensic odontology, but we're gonna focus specifically on bite mark analysis. And this is not a super popular method because there are pros and cons to it, but the biggest case that kind of brought light to the bite mark analysis technique was the Ted Bundy case, which I'll get into in a little bit. I just wanna go over first what bite mark analysis is. All right. So when a bite mark is found on a victim, it's compared to the teeth of a suspect. Chances are through investigation, they'll be able to identify at least some suspects mm -hmm. and they can narrow down based on the suspect's teeth. But there's actually seven different types of bite marks, oh, which okay. I did not know I... prior to researching. I found a whole research paper about <laughs> it. The first is a hemorrhage, which is just like a small bleeding spot. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily blood breaking from the skin, but it, it can also be like the bruising underneath. Mm -hmm. And a uh, one, another type is called abrasion, so it's the second type. And it's an undamaging mark on the skin where it's like kind of almost like an indentation, but no skin is broken and there's no blood vessels that are broken. Okay. The third type is a contusion, which is also known as a bruise. It just basically means that some blood vessels have ruptured. Right. So there's bleeding under the skin. The fourth type is a laceration which I didn't know a laceration could be used to describe a bite mark, but that just means it's like the near puncture of skin. Yeah, I guess because like sh teeth are sharp enough to- Yeah. Yeah, to break skin. We just don't really typically use it for that purpose anymore. Exactly. <laughs> and then there's the fifth type is called an incision, which means it's a neat puncture or torn skin. So skin is actually broken mm -hmm. and it looks like a tear or it's just very clean like- Puncture. Yeah, so if um, usually if someone gets stabbed, that would be, if it's just like one stab, clean in, clean out, that would usually be referred to as an incision. Right, okay. The next is avulsion, which it's kind of gross, but it is the removal of skin. Okay. So like you would see in zombie movies, when a zombie bites and, and pulls skin off, mm -hmm. that is an avulsion to the victim. But the seventh type of bite mark is actually called an artifact, and that is the bitten off piece of skin. Okay. So going back to the zombie example, the victim would have the avulsion because the skin was removed, but the zombie would have the artifact, which is that bitten off piece of skin. Yeah, that makes sense. If that sense. makes sense. Yeah. Another thing they look for in bite mark analysis is the degree of impression, because that can tell you how much pressure was used when the bite took place. So if a bite mark is recorded as clearly defined, it means there was significant pressure where you can see like the specific outline of the teeth and the kind of orientation, like if a, to if a tooth is crooked. And then if it's uh, documented as obviously defined, that's considered the first degree of pressure where it's a little more clear. It's not, it's got like very clean edges where you can see. And then there's the quite noticeable degree, which means that there was violent pressure used to make the bite, and that w that usually leads to the seven types of bite marks. It's usually through the quite noticeable degree of pressure that's found. So another thing I wanted to talk about is the types of teeth and their characteristics, just so that way you have an idea of what kind of tooth makes a kind of what kind of mark and where they are in your mouth. Mm -hmm. Because that might, uh, I'll be talking about that a little bit when I get into the specifics of Ted Bundy and his bite mark. But your incisors basically are rectangular shaped mark when left on a skin, when left on skin or styrofoam, even anything that can show your bite mark. Sometimes it has perforations, at like it's called the incisal angle. 
So like at the specific like angles, like they, the like, edges. Yeah, that they like kind of go in. Right. And then you have your well-known canine teeth, which leave triangular markings with the apex towards labial, so like kind of lip area. And then the base is towards the lingual, which is your tongue. Yeah. I hope I got that right. <laughs> that sounds good. Well, also, if I get anything incorrect, please, especially to our listeners, please correct me so that way I can I can make up for it and like explain what what was wrong on the next episode. Yeah, just like constructive criticism is it's very appreciated. much appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have your premolar teeth, which are single or dual triangle bases, and the triangles kind of face each other to come together as like a diamond shape. Okay. I know it doesn't. It doesn't sound like it makes much sense. If you were to bite into like a piece of styrofoam, you you'd be able to see the shapes that your teeth make, and those are right in front of your molar teeth, which they're rarely seen left in bite marks because they're the ones all the oh, way at the very very back, like where your wisdom teeth are, the ones that are usually used for grinding, and those leave uh, quadrilateral shape of markings. Mm-hmm. So they're very unique, but also very rarely seen in bite marks okay, just because yeah. of how far in the object would have to go for the molars to leave an actual bite mark right we don't really bite with our back teeth no that's why they're used for grinding yeah. that's why the canines are in the front and <laughs> middle to the front so then actually i didn't realize that you can there's that there's specific individualization for people's teeth marks mm-hmm. in the overall term it makes sense that it can be highly individualized like for me having no canine teeth is not going to match a bite mark from you. Right. But the anatomical location, severity, and quality of bite marks do have significance in identification of the individual. So if you can figure out all of those little individualization markers, it'll lead you to to a suspect a little easier. Okay. And then I'm just going to go into some, like, common terms that are used in forensic odontology and bite mark analysis, just so that way everyone has a clear understanding of exactly what I'm talking about. Um, So the first one, the first kind of feature that's useful is the shape of the dental arch. So are there any rotations in any teeth? Like it's overall, like for example, one of my back molars is a little twisted and crooked and you would clearly be able to see that. So that's an identification marker. So that's like how the teeth sit along the actual like yeah, going along the, the whole like bottom jaw, jaw yeah. how okay. they're all positioned, any abnormal positions, like is a canine tooth one tooth over than it should be, mm-hmm. any gaps or missing teeth, that's another thing that's looked for, for the, during the shape of the dental arch. The number of teeth present in each jaw is also referred to as an odontogram, and that's just basically, do you have the normal amount of teeth or like for the shape of dental arch. Are you missing any? Mm -hmm. Do you have any extra teeth? That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Another feature that is often looked for is the presence of dentures or sharp denture clasps because those are obviously seen in bite marks and analysis. Like you, because of the way they attach into the jaw, you should be able to point out like, oh, that's made from a set of dentures, not someone's- Like natural teeth. I was about to say birth teeth. Oh. But I know that we have baby teeth that fall out, so it is birth not, teeth. Birth, not birth teeth. Not the birth teeth. My bad. I, did, I didn't know dentures. So I know that, like, it depends on, like, what kind of dentures you get, because I know they're, like, ceramic and porcelain. But, mm-hmm. like, I didn't think dentures could... You could... 
have a bite force strong enough to leave. Because you know what I mean? Like I didn't. Well, I mean, it, it would be like you would have to have the same bite force to bite an apple or a carrot. And that can be, so because you can do that into a hard surface to obviously bite off, you can leave an impression in a softer surface. I guess, I guess I just think about like the human skin being tougher than an apple. I could be very wrong about that statement, but in my brain, like the Well, skin is skin. also very malleable. Yeah. Like okay. for example, this is an odd personal story, but in kindergarten, a kid bit me on the leg. I won't go into why, it's a long story. <laughs> That's for next um, episode. <laughs> but no skin was broken, but you okay. could clearly see the bite mark okay, of yeah. where the top and bottom jaw were. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you don't need to break the skin to show a bite mark. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Because if it's just an indentation, like the kid biting my leg, it'll it be, it'll be gone it. in a little bit. Right. And it doesn't have to be that hard. Yeah. Exactly. Like there was no bruising. It wasn't hard enough to leave a, to leave a bruise or leave, what's the word? A contusion. <laughs> contusion. Yeah. I had to go back and check. But it wasn't hard enough to break any of the blood vessels, but it was still hard enough to, that we, so that you could see the actual impression of the individual teeth. Okay. I also had a kid bite me in elementary school, but I was older. I was like, I think in fourth or fifth grade. I don't know what it is with kids. Kids just like biting things. Yeah. That's their way of learning about their environment. <laughs> I'm going to put it in my mouth and see what that's like. <laughs> Please don't go putting random things in yeah, your mouth. We do not endorse the action of putting random things in your mouth. Oh, oh there is so much that can go wrong if you just put random objects in your mouth. So another feature that they look for is distortion of some of the surfaces. So one of the definitions that I will, that I should have mentioned earlier is occlusal i really don't think i'm saying that right but that's basically the biting surface of the premolars and molars and one of the things that they look for to help individualize a bite is are there any abnormalities in the occlusion of the premolars and molars if they're seen left in the bite mark so is do you have like a normally like flat molar tooth mm -hmm. or do you have one that kind of has like dips so that's what they look for also the level of the biting surface and the jaw, like is it normal or by normal, I mean like about the same level as your other teeth or is there one molar or premolar that like kind of is a little bit longer so it sticks out further mm -hmm. and thus makes a deeper impression. They also look for broken or fractured teeth, particularly incisal fractures that may be responsible for abrasions. So your incisors are like your front teeth and if those are usually the ones that are seen first in a bite mark right. because obviously they're in the front. Those are the ones that are going to leave a mark if you bite someone. If there's any breaks or like cracks that they can see, that can also lead, help individualize a suspect. Because obviously if someone has a cracked tooth and, they and that is seen in the bite mark where like a chip of it is missing, obviously they know that their suspect is going to be someone with a chip in their tooth. Right. Okay. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And also any prominent teeth, like any that stick out further, mm -hmm. make like a bigger mark than the rest. Like for me, one of my, one of my incisors is a little bit like rotated. Mm -hmm. So it almost comes to a point right there. That would be an individualization marker that could help tie to a suspect. They also look at the biting pattern and angles of bite overhang. So if you have an overbite and underbite, um, the level of 
basically where your teeth sit and is it a cons is it a consistent pattern because of where they're fixed in your jaw do you have an overbite <laughs> I had to check. I couldn't remember. That's so funny. But yes, I do have an overbite. Okay, I have an underbite. Like a very tiny underbite. I'm My teeth basically, like, they sit on top of each other like this, but then like this is like slightly... It's a jaw thing. It's an Asian thing. Like, it, no, it really is because like our skulls are shaped differently based on our diet, right? That's how we evolve as species in general. That's right. I did remember, I, I'm reading a book right now about the forensic anthropologist that started the the original body farm in mm -hmm. University of Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that, that they talked about is in skulls for people with Asian heritage, you can actually see the difference in their jaw and that yeah. can help identify where their heritage is from. I went through five years of braces and I didn't know, like, I didn't know that because I was a kid when I had braces. Right. And then I learned that because I took a forensics class when I was in, um, late, like eighth grade, I took a forensics class and then I learned, I got my braces off that year too. And I learned that it's really a skull thing. Like, unless they broke my jaw and reset it, I would never have like the standard of American teeth, which is based off of white people teeth anyway. But, um, mm -hmm. yeah, so I didn't know that. And I was like, I just went through five years of like torture for to know that like my teeth were never messed up. It was just it was just because I'm Asian. <laughs> <laughs> but that's also why rubber bands and braces come into play because they use it to help correct an overbite or underbite. Right. I had those too. <laughs> I did too, because I had a I had a pretty bad overbite. Mm -hmm. And I also had to use an expander, which fun fact. When you have an expander, it goes in the roof of your mouth. And if you don't have an expander, you have to crank it a little bit, like every night. Mm -hmm. What that does is it slightly parts the bone in your, oh, in your right. hard palate. Yeah. So that way, as you're growing, because that's why they do this when you're young, so it's not as painful since it literally breaks the bone. It's the body refilling it. Right. <laughs> refilling it. Well, it like makes new making more yeah. Making more bone cells so that way it permanently keeps it that wide right those things are painful yeah that's why it hurts <clears throat> less when you break bones as a kid too you know what i mean you're more elastic as a child yeah the way i describe that to my coworker <laughs> is that children are durable i mean they are because i did a ride along with the police officer in the county and we went to the scene of a vehicle versus a five-year-old kid mm -hmm. and the drive, it was not completely the driver's fault. The kid was kind of hidden behind another car, so the driver didn't see until it was almost too late. Right. But the kid flipped in the air and fell down. Okay. I'll let you know now. The kid is fine. The only injuries, other than like superficial, like maybe a little scratch here and there, the only significant injury was a broken tibia. Sometimes. And that's only because that's, he landed on it funny when he landed after being flipped in the air. Now I'm gonna say something that completely discredits my master's degree. The tibia is in your leg, right? Yeah. It's your shin. Your shin bone. Okay, good. <clears throat> I was gonna be real embarrassed because I never remember, I know the radius and the ulna and the tibia and the fibia, but I always forget if it's arm or leg. But I know they go together, those like- I just kind. know because the ulna, it has like a little U and that connects to the olecranon process, which is your elbow. Right, okay, that's smart. See, I took anatomy and I don't remember that. <laughs> I took a forensics anatomy class at 7.40 a.m. First semester of freshman year of college. Oh, that's gross. 
But I loved that class. That was the only time they offered it. And I ended up with like a 97 overall average. I'll just say the anatomy is so interesting. I took anatomy during COVID. So I feel like I really got chipped out of like learning. Yeah. Because um, anatomy is also a lot of hands-on. That's how you can age a person based on their, um, what is it called? I think it's called the pubic synthesis. Yes. Mm-hmm. This, this, I can cover that. We can cover that in another we'll go episode. That one, yeah. I'm just mad that, um, so I was actually supposed to have, I took two classes in grad school. I took anatomy and I took, um, forensic. It was, I think just forensic science. It was like general, but it was in like the college of medicine. So it was like forensic medicine type thing. Yeah. And both of those were supposed to be cadaver labs where we got oh. to go like actually dissect. And I've never dissected anything. I've made it this far in my science career and I've never dissected. I dissected a worm one time in bio one college lab. That's it. That's the only thing we dissected. How do you dissect a worm? Cause very carefully. <laughs> they're very small and like their skin is very like fragile. Yeah. Um, and like does the, whole, does the whole like dissection have to be done under a microscope? No, you can do it without a microscope. You just have to be very careful because when you like go in with the scalpel, um, you can oftentimes puncture the organs because they sit so close to the skin and the skin's very okay. thin. So you just have to be careful. But um, I know like I went through like multiple worms because like I, you know, you just push too hard. Okay. Yeah, but you just have to be very careful. <clears throat> but I, I didn't even do like the very stereotypical dissect a frog. Fun fact, I never dissected a frog. My my school had us dissect cats. Oh, yeah. my Yeah, I didn't take anatomy, but my high school did Another that. fun fact, we had to change companies because the company we got the cats from was under investigation on how they obtained oh, the cats. Oh, no. <laughs> That's not good. No. Yikes. And then uh, <laughs> I dissected a cow eyeball in seventh grade. Okay. I've, I've heard of those before, too. I've seen, I've seen eye dissections. Yeah. It, I mean, the thing was like a... Bigger than a baseball. Yeah, cow eyes are. But then again, big. I was seventh grade, so smaller hands. <clears throat> <laughs> and then I've dissected a squid at Sea Camp in the Florida Keys. You went to Sea Camp? I did. I did too. And then I took anatomy, my an honors anatomy that was really taught at AP level mm-hmm. my senior year of high school. And I was so upset because the one day that I had to be gone because I went to do college tours across the country, uh-huh. that's when they dissected pregnant rats. Oh, and okay. sheep brains. And my professor swore, or my teacher swore that she would save me a sheep brain for me to dissect mm-hmm. in like for not for extra credit, but for the learning experience. Because right. that teacher knew that I I was really interested in forensics and would, and even like saved an article from a newspaper oh. about USF starting or wanting to start a body oh, farm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she said that she would save me one and she didn't. And I was so upset that I missed out on the chance to dissect pregnant rat and just because you could see the, like the fetal skeletons and tissue right, yeah and the sheep brain that would have been so interesting to me but then I got to college and we dissected rabbits when I took my anatomy um, class yeah I feel like I, I don't I don't know what I did in college to be quite frank <laughs> besides that I don't know we didn't do anything cool we did a worm and then we did this stupid so I did this lab three times I did it in high school I did it at community college and then I did it again in regular worms college. are small and relatively cheaper no not even the worm it's a fly thing it's like you take so it's it's a genetic lab and you take they're like fruit flies you take fruit flies and you have fruit flies that either have black or brown bodies, yep. yellow, red eyes, like that thing. And you 
you crossbreed them basically and then you do like the statistics and see like the deviation like of, like the punnett squares yeah and what the outcome would be yeah. um and i studied do, like, the original i think it's mendelian uh genetics yeah the yeah pea plants. yeah the pea plants that's mm-hmm. what I, st- I actually took a semester of genetics as well yeah but i took it during my january term where one semester is squeezed into one, oh like this in weeks. one month yeah 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 so I, you only take that one class but you have that class like monday through thursday right and that's your mm-hmm. only class for like all day that's um we called mm-hmm. it we called it winter master and okay. It, it actually it started right after Christmas, so I think it started December twenty seventh, and it went through like January twenty seventh. Ours started like January second. Yeah, and then um, and then we had then we had May Master, which started like the very end of April and went to the very end of May. Oh, we didn't have that. Yeah, I I, I never took one of those mm-hmm. courses. My friend did, and I like helped her out a lot with that class because. It was a lot of work. It was she took like a criminal. I don't remember what it was a criminology class though. Criminology is a lot of theories of crime, but it was a lot of papers. That was the thing. Yeah, like, yeah, it was a lot of papers to write in a month. <laughs> but yeah. Anyways, anyway, <laughs> um, I looked at my notes and I realized I actually wrote down the common terminologies much later in my notes than I should have. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna go over those definitions real quick if I can look at the correct paper. So basically, the arch it refers to your upper or lower denture. So the arch is. From your is like your bottom jaw, for example, mm-hmm. how it's like in a half, like oval. That is considered a the a crescent. That's the word. <laughs> that's considered the arch. Okay. And then there's the cementum, which is the hard connective tissue that covers the tooth root. So if you've ever seen your teeth after you've had them extracted, it's the actual hard covering. So that way your nerves aren't really exposed. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. And it's called cementum because it's supposed to be hard. So like cement. Mm-hmm. That's how I was taught to remember it. And then there's another common definition is decay, which basic definition, it means something is decomposing or, or there's lesions in the tooth structure where decomposing is occurring. Then there's the dentin, which is the part of the tooth between the cementum and the enamel. And the enamel is actually the hard calcified tissue that covers like the crown of your tooth. Mm-hmm. So like the part that actually bites, that's considered the enamel. And then, I don't know why I have this written down, but the word jaw. Yeah, that uh, is part of the, <laughs> that's part of the mouth system. Yes, it is. <laughs> but it's also the common name for the maxilla or the mandible. Yep. The maxilla is the upper part of your jaw. It's like your front teeth on the top. The one that's actually like fused into like in part of your skull. Mm-hmm. The mandible is your bottom jaw, which technically is not like fused to your skull. That's why it can move. It's held together with like connective tissues. Mm-hmm. So that's why whenever human bones are found, you don't always, you don't really see the bottom jaw connected to the right. mandible and the skull. And then I already covered what molar, the teeth behind the premolars and the grinding teeth. That's a bad definition for molars. Teeth behind premolars. Yeah. <laughs> I just realized that. Um, and then the occlusal, which is again, the biting surface of the premolars and the molars. Have you ever seen a tooth, a tooth extraction? Like right after the extraction? No, I've had multiple teeth extracted. And the first time I passed out on the floor of oh, the dentist office and they good. woke me up with the ammonia smelling salt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but then they switched it out so it was a chocolate in front of my face when I woke up, which chocolate right after a tooth procedure. Not Doesn't sure like that's a, a good, good thing. <laughs> um, and then the only other time I had teeth pulled was wisdom teeth and I was yeah. completely out. Mm-hmm. 
I wish, I really wish I would have kept my teeth because I would have just loved to like study and like be able to see like, okay, uh, this is where the root is and this is where like the enamel is. That's my scientific mind. So if I ever have to get like a joint replaced or something, I'm gonna ask if they if I can keep yeah the the bone material. That's, obviously. Um, okay, so I have, a, I have a couple things on that. <laughs> I've seen a tooth extraction. My mom got a tooth extraction, and I was there because my mom hates the dentist. She had an infected tooth, so they actually pull everything out, and then the dentist is like, "You see that thing that's hanging off of it? That's the infection sac." And I was like, "That's so cool." That is also that's <laughs> so interesting for like scientific research, but it's also disgusting to have an infection sac. Yeah, I mean, when anytime you have an infection, like it's usually like it clump. You know what I mean? It, it clumps, like, clumps together. together. Yeah. yeah, it wants to be with itself. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, he did that. That was cool. Also, like I'm gonna sell my mom out a little bit here. So my mom <laughs> has implant dentures so she's got the screws in her like i feel gums. like those are more stable you know yes but also i know she had a lot of issues she's had them for i think two years now she had a lot of issues in the beginning oh, it took okay. like a year to really settle in and like heal from it all yeah i oh, think it wow. takes longer to do that but then once it's good you're good but it's like you gotta it's a little bit longer versus like the extraction and regular dentures but, okay. Um, but she has actually like implanted into your bone almost. Yeah. One time though, her screw fell out <gasps> of her top and she was like, can you just screw this back in? I'm like, I don't know how to do this, but I'll try. And I just like went in and I did it with my fingers. And then we went to the dentist because she's like, I gotta go to the dentist now. Obviously. Yeah. We went to the dentist and then she told the dentist what happened and he like looked at her mouth and he was like, how did you get the screw back in? Cause he was like, where's the screw? And then she's like, no, my daughter put it back in. And then he looked at me and he said, you put this, he's like, how did you put this back in? And I said, I don't know. I just put my fingers up there and I did it. And he's like, you want a job here? <laughs> no, I don't want to be in people's mouths all day. <laughs> but yeah, I guess I did a decent job though. I have no idea what I did. <laughs> But yeah, fun memory. Yeah, it was fun. So yeah, that's like my teeth extraction. Oh yeah, I have my dog's baby teeth. He had to get them extracted from the vet because- That sounds familiar. I think I remember you telling me yeah, that. Yeah, because he's a brat and he couldn't lose all of his baby teeth by four months when I got him neutered. He had to wait until he was a year and a half, not lose all of his baby teeth. And then I had to pay for him to have oral surgery because you know, that's the fun part about having pets. <laughs> yeah. But they gave me his baby teeth, which I thought was really cool. Cause I was like, I didn't think they were going to do that. I mean, I didn't ask either. They were just like, Hey, do you want his baby teeth? And I'm like, absolutely. What kind of question is this? And so now I have like a little pill bottle. It's a question <laughs> because some people would find it weird, but the, my scientific mind is like, that would be so cool to just look at and it, see the it different is cool ones to see. And I was going to say, I have my, <clears throat> so I had my gallbladder removed last year. Please don't tell me you have your gallbladder. No, bro, I asked. <laughs> I asked. I, I asked. And well, not for the organ, because I, I know I couldn't preserve that. But I had gallstones. That's why they took it out. And I oh, said, okay. can I have my stones? And they were like, I mean, you can, but we have to send them to pathology to make sure they're not cancerous. First. That makes sense. And then it's like, it can take a couple weeks from pathology. And then like, then you have to like come down and get them again. And they're not going to be like as they took them out of your body, I know, obviously. which is rude. 
I want the whole thing. <laughs> so they were like, yeah, no, we usually don't let people. They're like, if you want to like sign the forms, we can get the paperwork so you can like come But it's back just a whole it. process at yeah, that point. I was just like, no, I guess not. <laughs> but I really want my stones. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's my, um. I, I also am very curious what's going on. I just want to know, like if I could, if I could autopsy myself and not die, I would do it. <laughs> I just want to know what's going on in there, you know? <laughs> okay. On, on the note we were supposed to stay on. Sorry. <laughs> we both went off on tangents there. Um, so I have, a, I have a little section about how bite mark analysis is actually done. Okay. Because it's one of the methods to process evidence, not process, but to do the comparison that can actually be done in the courtroom in front of the jury. Like for DNA analysis, you can't, you obviously cannot do that in front of the jury. Right. So that's why it's such a big thing. So the jury can watch exactly how it's done beginning to end. And it's, so it's all documented and they can clearly see there's nothing going wrong if it's done correctly. But um, obviously for the first part, just like anything for evidence, crime scene related, you have to take a ton of pictures from every angle uh especially because rulers are used to determine the orientation, depth, and size of the bite. They have to get all of those measurements and they have to like hold a ruler up to it, take a photo with the ruler, without the ruler. They obviously will swab for DNA because if it's teeth, there's a high probability that you have saliva on your teeth when you bite something or someone. So they will always swab for DNA. And again, they have to photograph before and after just in case they do so, changes. Just in case anything changes to document that. So that way there's no gap in why, did, why is this here now and not earlier. Mm -hmm. And uh, measurements of each bite mark is documented. That's along the same of with the rulers to determine orientation and all of those details. But this is one thing that I found very odd that I did not realize actually. If the bite mark is on a deceased victim, there are times when the bite mark will be cut from the skin itself and preserved in, I can't read my writing. I think that's formalin, but I can't remember if it's that or formaldehyde that it's actually preserved in. Okay. So that way they can keep, they can keep it rather than have it decompose. Right. But the biggest thing is as soon as a bite mark analysis is, is noticed, a forensic dentist or odontologist has to be called immediately. And this is because bite marks change significantly over time. Mm -hmm. So it'll bruise over time and all of that. Let me see if I have more, but no, like basically over, I think it said over the first three to four hours, a bite mark on, on human skin will change significantly, which okay. is why so there's faster than rigor. Right. Because you can have the bite and then the bruise will slowly start to form. Mm -hmm. So you have to make sure you can get all the photos of the bite mark as it was found at the scene to get the most accurate representation of the bite mark. And since skin is also a malleable surface, as the, as the human body will decompose, mm -hmm. like skin starts to sag, right. it may not show an accurate representation of the anatomy of the jaw of the biter, if that makes sense. Okay. One of the most common comparison methods is they call an overlay where they will take a picture of the bite mark and have the, it's usually a cast for, or like a hand traced cast of the teeth marks of the suspect. Mm -hmm. They will zoom or not zoom in, but they will like blow them up mm -hmm. and lay them literally on top of each other to see if the bite mark on the material 
whatever the material may be, to see if that actually lines up tooth for tooth compared to the suspect's actual jaw. Okay. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. And that's actually something they did do in the Ted Bundy case. So Ted, like I said earlier, the Ted Bundy case is the most is it's known as the most famous bite mark analysis case. Mm-hmm. We're not going to go too much into the actual crime of into all of the details of Ted Bundy's crimes, just because I wanted to focus on the bite mark analysis. But if you don't know Ted Bundy, he, he raped and killed more than 30 women. But he was actually convicted of the rape and murder of Lisa Levy and Martha Brown. The way that bite mark analysis comes into play is that Bundy left a bite mark on Lisa Levy's buttock. And this is the case that really shows the importance of documenting at the scene and measuring at the scene. Because as I said, bite marks degrade over time. And this is why I absolutely hate doing crime scene photography because it's so meticulous. But I know it's such an important thing. Because by the time that Bundy was actually taken to trial, Mm -hmm. the original bite mark was too degraded by that time and by that point. So it was no longer useful as evidence. But because they had crime scene photos and the sheriff at the time actually thought ahead and took a photo of the bite mark with a ruler in front of it, so that way they can get accurate measurements, that was able to provide the legal proof for the original size and shape of the bite mark. Wow. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting because I think I have it written down somewhere, but the bite mark was actually the first time there was physical evidence linking Bundy to a victim. Right. Because he was a, he was a smart guy. He knew not to leave any DNA. It was very hard for officers and police and crime scene investigators to physically tie him to a victim right. other than just like eyewitness reports or something like that. This was physical evidence that says, look, he was there. We know that because he did this. Do we know why he did like her butt? I don't know specifically. Okay. It might be part of the uh, sadism kind of thing he had going on. Right. But I guess like, cause he never really marked up victims Mm -hmm. that way before. Right. But this was also deviation in his method because it was one of the sorority girls from Florida State State University. (laughs) And there were multiple victims in that one house in that one night. Right. Yeah. That that was very different than his typical. Than his typical, yeah, MO. So forensic odontologist Dr. Richard Suveron, I think is how you pronounce it. He examined Ted Bundy's teeth and took photos of his lower and upper teeth or the lower and upper jaw and the dentition. Mm -hmm. These photos were enlarged in court to show that there were unique characteristics of Bundy's teeth. And this was a chipped left left incisor with three peaks. So it was chipped to the point where there were three protruding parts of that one tooth. Oh, so it looked like a mountain, like a jagged mountain. Yes. And he had distinctively crooked teeth on on his lower jaw. I, uh, for the photos I will be posting on Instagram, I'm going to be including a photo that shows just how his bite mark looked and a photo of his actual teeth to show. Mm-hmm. But these, like I said, because it, bite mark analysis is something that can be done in a court, it was very easy to show the jury. Here's a photo of Ted Bundy's teeth and his bite marks. Here's a photo of the bite mark left on the victim. This is what they look like when they're overlaid. And he said that, or this this um, forensic odontologist, he used a transparent overlay so that way you could see the markings of both. Mm-hmm. 
And he said that it was a match. And they have obviously in scientific, in the scientific method, validity and that kind of thing, like having someone else come in and review it. That's why peer reviewed journals are a thing. So they brought in another person to examine the bite marks and just kind of make sure everything was done right mm -hmm. from another professional's perspective. And this person was the chief consultant in forensic dentistry to the New York City Police Department medical examiner, Dr. L. Levine. So another highly ranked professional, very well trained in what he did. And he said, based on the position and measurements, the bite on Lisa Levy was made when she was most likely dead or near death because there was no evidence of a struggle okay. in the bite mark. Right. Okay. So it shows that the skin was not moving when he made the bite. And it was said that Bundy's teeth marks and the bite on Lisa Levy were found to be virtually identical. And the jury was convinced that Bundy made the bite mark. And this was the biggest piece of evidence that led to his conviction. So that's how forensic odontology and bite mark analysis helped bring about the conviction of Ted Bundy. That's really cool. I saw, I've seen <clears throat> like the, um, cause Ted Bundy's trial was one of the first trials that was televised nationally right. and it was mm -hmm. huge it was such a sensation um i should actually ask my mom if she watched it because she was older when like that happened but um my mom too yeah let's we'll, we'll come back we'll ask our parents <laughs> but i saw like the like original footage of that and it's so crazy to like you know what i mean that they were like able to do mm -hmm. that and back in like the that was in the uh, 90s or 80s. I don't know what e what year he was convicted in, but I know that the murder of Lisa Levy occurred in January of 1978. 78. Okay, so it's probably the 80s. But mm -hmm. like, it's cool that like we had that kind of advanced technology in a way, even then. Uh, like the ability to see that kind of stuff back then. Because we think about like DNA mm -hmm. analysis hasn't really, you know what I mean? It's newer. Like DNA has right. really only been around since the late 80s, early 90s. And having the footage of the biomark analysis being shown in court that also since that that part was also televised and it's actually shown in the Ted Bundy movie on Netflix with Zac Efron. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that movie. That's a really interesting um, movie from a different perspective. Yeah. yeah. But so to finish out the podcast, I just want to name all of the victims, not all of the victims, but the confirmed victims. Mm -hmm. So there was Joni Lenz, an 18 year old in January of 1974 who actually survived. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing all of these names right, but I'm really trying. Okay. And then in February of 19, or sorry, it was Joni Lenz uh, survived an attack in January of 1974. In February of 1974, Linda Ann Healy, a 21, 21 year old was killed. And then in March of 1974, there was 19 year old Donna Gail Manson, who was also un who also unfortunately passed. There was also eight. There were two victims from the same day in April of 1974, and that's Susan Rancourt, an 18-year-old, and Roberta Parks, a 20-year-old. In June of 1974, Brenda Carroll Ball, a 22-year-old, was killed. One woman that encountered Bundy. She's actually last I from the research I did, she is still missing, and they have not found a body. But this was from June in 1974. Her name is Georgian Hawkins, and she was 18 years old. Again, there were two on the same day in on July 14th of 1974, and that's 18-year-old Denise Nasland and 23-year-old Janice Ott. There are a couple of his victims that 
the bodies were never found. And another one is 16-year-old Nancy Wilcox from October of 1974. Also in October of 1974, 17-year-old Melissa Smith was killed by Ted Bundy. Laura Amy, I think that's how you pronounce her name, a 17-year-old, was went missing and has links to the Ted Bundy and his cases. But the date that I have for her missing is actually Halloween day of 1974. On November 8th in 1974, two people were attacked by Ted Bundy and one of them actually survived. The survivor was Carol DeRanch, 18 years old. And the other victim that unfortunately passed is Deborah Kent, 17 year old. On, in January of 1975, one of his victims that passed is Karen Campbell, 23 year old. In March of 1975, it was Julia, Julie, I apologize, Julie Cunningham, 26 years old. In April of 1975, Denise Oliverson, 24-year-old, went missing. In mid-April of 1975, Melanie Cooley, 18 years old, was killed. On May 6th in 1975, Lynette Culver, a 12-year-old, went missing. That was his youngest victim. At the end of June in 1975, Susan Curtis, 15 years old, went missing. And then this next these next few are all from the same night from the sorority murders. The two women that passed were Margaret Bowman, 21 years old, and Lisa Levy, 20 years old. She's the one that Bundy left the bite mark on that helped kind of seal his conviction. But there were three survivors from that attack. It was 20-year-old Kathy Kleiner, 22-year-old Karen Chandler, and 21-year-old Cheryl Thomas. And after that... On February 9th of seven, oh, sorry, February 9th of 1978, Carol Leach, another 12-year-old, was killed. And Bundy actually confessed to killing 30 people. Only about 20 were confirmed, but he's suspected of killing over 36. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. And in such like brutal fashion. Yeah. And so quickly too, like those. They're all, like, relatively short time periods mm -hmm. after each other. It was only a span of four years, but a lot of his victims were kind of grouped into the same month. Right, yeah. That's, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, so I just wanted to end the podcast recognizing the victims and survivors. And that's the most well-known case of bite mark analysis. That was awesome. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. Thank you. And um, thank you for giving notice to the victims, too. I know, like, not everybody always talks about that, but there is a whole other side to these cases than just the perpetrator, criminal, yeah. the perpetrator themselves. So there's, I really wanted to make sure we mentioned the victims. Yeah, and the, there's obviously this didn't happen too terribly long ago, so there are people that are still alive that were affected by these cases. Right. So it's important to recognize that as well. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, do you want to tell the people where they can find us if they want to know more? We have an Instagram. Oh, yeah. I have to. <laughs> and um, other I socials? Question mark? Right now, we just have the Instagram. Okay. And if I can actually work my Instagram, you can find us at Live Laugh Live Remortis. Yes, on Instagram. And um, yeah, you can see the pictures. Up there, we'll post, like, pictures for each um, episode that are pertinent to the case, uh, to what we're talking about in the cases and stuff. Yeah, so, like, uh, for this case, 
I'll be posting a black and white picture from court showing the actual photos, the crime scene photo of the bite mark, a mold of Ted Bundy's bite, a 3D model of his bite, and actually a picture of Ted Bundy's teeth. Okay, awesome. All right, so you can catch us there, and then we will be back next week with another episode. We will. This has been Live, Laugh, Live, or Mortis. Mortis.